Good morning. Um, so like last week, I think maybe Joe said like, Heather's gonna answer all those hard questions. And I was like, oh, I am? And then like, so I was asking people like all week, like what, what would you say um, to this like question about like, what, what do you do with what we've done? What do we do with what we've done? And, um, and everyone was like, I don't know, that's, that's a hard, hard thing. And I was like, yeah, I know. And then, and then I was like, oh, okay, actually, Joe told me the answer when he told me what I should preach about. He said, responsibility, take responsibility. So after we repent, we take responsibility. That's the answer, guys. And then, and then I was just like, okay, so I guess like this is for church, so I should find a scripture verse. So how, what does taking respons- responsibility look like? Micah 6.8, it's a good answer for everything, basically. Um, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. Perfect. That, that actually wasn't so hard. It was easy. Sermon done. Uh, okay, no, I mean, I'm just kidding. Because um, then I was like, okay, well, maybe we should talk about why taking responsibility is hard, why we get stuck in cycles of violence, and maybe you guys want to hear some like nice, good examples of responsibility, taking responsibility. When I told Michaela I was preaching about responsibility yesterday, she looked like, she looked at me like this was going to be a really boring sermon, so <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> okay, so what do we do with what we've done? Last week, Joe called this all of our stuff. Um, but today we're going to be more explicit and call it our harms. Not to be confused with any harms in the room. Um, <laughs> I was trying to like work that harm joke in all week. I didn't know how I would do it. <laughs> um, because that's what we're actually talking about in this series. What do we do when we have hurt other people, when we have hurt ourselves? What do we do when we have created this brokenness? So I teach um, a restorative justice class at the Saskatoon Correctional Center. Um, and one of our classes, we always talk about well, how do we respond, how do we react when we have been harmed? And you know, there's like two very like common answers. One, sometimes people are like, well, I get angry and I hurt the person and that is why I'm in jail. Or they say, I go off by myself and I drink or I numb it somehow and I don't deal with it and that is why I'm in jail. And these are two common responses that we all actually do. We act out when we have been hurt. We want to hurt the person who hurt us. Um, We do this by being aggressive, by saying mean things, sometimes by getting physical, by doing things that will hurt other people emotionally, uh, mentally, physically, spiritually. Even if that person isn't the direct one who has hurt us, we still want to create pain for other people. We want them to know how we are feeling. We are hurting, so we want other people to hurt. Or we turn inwards and we withdraw 
We put up walls to protect ourselves. Um, we numb ourselves. We don't want to be hurt again. We tell ourselves we are not worthy of healing from this harm. And these two reactions can cycle back and forth. So we act out, we are aggressive, then we feel ashamed by this, we put up walls, we withdraw, we numb, and then we can act out again. And it can go back and forth and back and forth. And so when we are the ones who have caused the harm, this is often what we witness. And we may experience um, hurt as a reaction of our harmful words or actions. And this can cause a sometimes long, often confusing interaction between both parties um, where both parties feel wounded and victimized. When I was telling, the, when we, I was talking about this with Joel, he was like, hey, this is like all of our fights. <laughs> By the end, we don't really remember what the fight, the disagreement, was about. Or we see the person in front of us shut down, refuse to engage with us, refuse to interact with us, and maybe this is what we wanted in the first place. Um, maybe this helps us feel like we have won. We are, have the power. Now both parties know our positions and no further actions are needed. Or maybe we didn't realize we held so much power and we feel shamed and embarrassed. So all of these reactions after we have hurt someone or caused hurt or realized we are part of a, a, a group or a system that has caused hurt, the reactions of confusion, woundedness, um, power, shame, embarrassment, embarrassment, all of these inhibit us from being able to take responsibility. So that's one reason why responsibility is so hard. We have these barriers. Another reason why taking responsibility is so hard is that situations are just like complicated and complex. Um, I didn't read any of these books to do preparation for this sermon, but I googled like responsibility books and all these books had like hundreds of pages in them. So like I figured, you know, that's pretty complex. I mean, like, just like the Wangari story, it's a very simple, nice narrative, but if you go into it very deeply, it was so complex. Um, you know, we live in a capitalist society that systematically oppresses people around the world uh, to produce our, the things we need in our life. Um, how do we, we make responsible decisions when we need a toilet? Like, that day. <laughs> Yesterday, to be specific, how do we make uh, responsible decisions? Even look, look at this like uh, responsibility chart. That's for children. Even that like looks really complicated. So responsibility is complicated. What I did do instead of reading all those books, I just Googled responsibility, and I found this very interesting study. Um, that highlights another possible reason why taking responsibility is difficult is because we perhaps are not biologically wired for it. Um, so there's been research that has tracked um, the negative reactions and perception of time. And it has shown that like, so if we 
do something that has a negative reaction, we perceive the time in between what we have done and that reaction as longer. So the perception of time is longer if there is a negative reaction. And the longer the perception of time, the less um, likely we will feel the responsibility for that bad thing. We don't connect it to that thing that we have done. Um, so in other words, like we may truly experience this feeling of less responsibility when the impact of our actions is negative. So analysts suggest from that this research uh, is looking at, is, is from the point of view of evolutionary biology. Um, and why this happens is, is maybe that when we are part, we're part of a tribal society, you know, if we would have done something that was created harm in our tribe, the tribe would have kicked us out. And the tribe is what we needed for survival. And so if we dis disconnected ourselves from that bad thing, it would be less likely we would be kicked out. So that, that's just interesting. So taking responsibility is hard. Doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly, this is a big task. Um, but here's the thing. The consequences of taking responsibility can be life-changing, amazing, and miraculous. So we're going to start, I want to tell you about the Elmira case. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do like a Joe and just play something. Um, but first I will set it up. Also Joe does that too. Um, so Elmira, Ontario in 1974, there was two young men who broke the law and their caseworker was Mark Yancey, that's this guy. And he had an idea of how these two young men could take responsibility for their actions. So let us watch. I had just gotten a report. Two young men who had gone through the town of Elmira had 22 counts of willful damage. They'd just done a path of destruction through the town, slashing tires, smashing windows, just up one street and down the next. A buddy of mine, we were touring around back roads, drinking beer and getting quite inebriated. I said, well, what do you want to do? My buddy says, well, let's just go race some hell. I said, okay. So I very flippantly said, wouldn't it be neat to have these guys meet their victims? And I said, the way I would do this would be I would maybe put an addendum on the back saying I thought there could be some therapeutic value to have these offenders meet their victims. When we had talked about it, and he said, well, I'd rather go to jail. And I said, well, you know, going to jail would be the easy way out. We wouldn't have to meet the people. This is going to be harder than going to jail. The probation officer would always go and, and talk to the judge. He said, what's this you had here about having to meet their victims? And I said, oh, yeah, well, it was just a, just a thought. And he said, oh, it sounds like a good idea, but I don't know if I have, uh, if there's been any precedent. Finding places where it's been done before is what you use to base and justify doing it now. But it kind of begs the question, if it's never been done before, how does a new idea ever get into the system?
Um, so that's part of a longer 30-minute documentary. Um, <clears throat> so Judge McConnell, who was assigned this case, um, could have tossed the teens into jail. They would have had a record, and they would have been forever seen as criminals. But McConnell accepted this new idea and became a strong advocate for restorative justice. He supported a different way of doing justice. And the youth took responsibility by meeting the people whose property they had damaged, saying sorry, and paying restitution and fines. And as a direct, direct result of this case, the Canadian Criminal Code was changed to allow interaction between victim and offenders, and it embedded, oh, you can't really see that, but it embedded restorative justice within our legal system, um, or restorative justice programs. So over here, you could, on this side is just, the, our, our um, criminal justice web page, and uh, you can see that there is this restorative justice section in it. So this has created positive and life-changing ways to do justice for many people. Okay, we're going to move forward in time now to 1994, and I want to tell you about the beginnings of Circles for Support and Accountability. I'm going to tell you about this from the words of Harry Nye, who is the founder of this, um, the way, this program. He writes, In June of 1994, Dr. Bill Palmer, a psychologist at one of our federal penitentiaries, was driving Charlie back to the community after he had served every day of his seven-year sentence for sexually offending against a child. He had known, I had known Charlie for 15 years through my previous work with a ministry of friendship that linked prisoners with Christian sponsors. Now I was serving as a pastor in a small Mennonite congregation in Hamilton. Bill had called me a few months before wondering if we could put Charlie on a Mennonite farm upon release um, in a caring and structured home without children. He was 41 years old, but he had been raised in foster homes and large institutions where he himself had been sexually abused as a child. Trying to place Charlie on a farm proved futile, but I told Bill that maybe we could create a circle of support for Charlie and Hamilton. I recruited members from my congregation and community to be part of a small circle so that Charlie would have somebody in the community when he, when he landed, like a surrogate family. We informally called our group Charlie's Angels. We had no idea what we were getting in for. At the beginning, when this all started, we never conceived of this as a program. We just wanted to do something to help one guy, Charlie. I also knew that if nothing was done, there would be another victim. Um, as an aside, they, Charlie's release plan when he came out said that he was at 100% risk of reoffending. Within two days of his release, the police made his picture available to the media and warned the community of his presence among us. He was front page news. One headline read, Streets of Fear. The school boards photocopied the press release and gave it to the primary schools in our region. When the flyer landed on the desk of my eight-year-old son, he picked it up and announced, I know him. He was at our place for supper last night. The police mounted 24-hour su surveillance on Charlie because they felt sure he would reoffend within a short period. We heard later that the cost of the six-week surveillance amounted 
to more than $350,000. All of this community uproar was unnerving for our little community. We had two congregational meetings at which everyone was invited to speak. Fears for our kids were expressed. What resources did we have as a little group to cope with this complex, polarizing issue? In the midst of the discussion, Eleanor, one of the most vulnerable in our community, spoke up. If Jesus hadn't welcomed me, where would I be today? The group decided unanimously to welcome Charlie, recognizing that we would all need to work together to help him avoid problem situations. Charlie's circle met with him regularly. Individually, we contacted him every day, taking him to do laundry, shop for groceries, find furniture for his apartment, and we would listen, listen, listen. For the first six weeks, every time we took Charlie out to his apartment, out of his apartment, major crime detectives in two unmarked cars followed us everywhere. The principal detective actually attended some of our meetings, and gradually the police became supportive of what we were trying to do. Charlie's circle of support filled a number of roles. Advocating for the system, advocating with the system to secure the benefits that were rightfully his, confronting Charlie about his attitudes and behavior, walking with him through emergencies, providing financial backing when his kitten needed emergency surgery, mediating landlord and tenant conflicts, and celebrating anniversaries, milestones, and all the small advances in Charlie's journey of reintegration. The circle felt keenly a dual responsibility, to be a caring community for Charlie in the midst of the hostility of the larger community, but also to a responsible community, oh, hostility to, to the larger community, but also to a respons responsible community, concerned that there be no more victims. We always hoped that our present might, presence might avert a situation in which another child would be hurt. Three months after Charlie's release to Hamilton, another high-profile offender named Ray returned to the city of Toronto, and colleagues who had been observing and supporting our efforts in Hamilton created the second circle of support and accountability. Before we knew it, a movement had begun, a community-based response that allowed ordinary citizens to move from fearful rejection to active, compassionate involvement supported by experienced professionals in creating sanctuaries where despised offenders would be treated with respect, but also accountability. Both Charlie and Ray lived with chronic medical conditions. Charlie lived on his own in Hamilton for 12 years before he died of a heart attack, and Ray lived 14 years in Toronto before succumbing to cancer. Neither man ever committed another sexual offense. For both men, their community of support remained steadfast and profound. Mutual caring emerged that transformed us all. So this model of COSA works. Um, this summer they celebrated 25 years. And studies have shown that um, rates of reoffending decrease by 70% when people are involved in this program. But the reason it works is that it's a voluntary program. People need to take responsibility for what they have done. I um, sit on the Micah Mission COSA Advisory Board, 
So I hear like really amazing stories of loving kindness and friendship among really hard realities um, that many people are navigating. I mean, if, if people who have committed sexual violations can take responsibilities for their actions, really this is a model for all of us. And you should volunteer to be part of a COSA. These, these three organizations are, are um, in Saskatchewan doing COSA groups. So my final example of how miraculous taking responsibility can be um, is taken from the children's story we heard last week, the prodigal son. So the younger son in this story messed up really bad. Um, in a culture where nothing is more valuable than honor, for a son to ask his father for his inheritance was unthinkable. It was like telling his father he wished he was dead. The father could have disinherited his son at that moment, and local villagers would have treated this son as if he were dead, dead to the community. Yet in the parable, the father divides the property amongst his sons, turning upside down the legal customs and allowing himself to be dishonored. When the younger son found himself out of money and starving, he decided to return to his father. So we can imagine that walk home. This was his act of responsibility. He had a plan and he knew he would face shame and scorn from the villagers who would see him walking toward his father's house before he could even begin to plead and grovel for his dad to take him back. But to, to his surprise, his father runs to him. Patriarchy and honor are dashed to pieces in this incredible reaction. The younger son was publicly liberated from his own shame by the actions of his father. These actions demonstrated to all in the community that his son was not dead, but alive. It is interesting to note that the father's actions occurred without any proof of genuine repentance or responsibility from the younger son. And if we think about the story, we can also notice who didn't take responsibility, the older son. When the younger son asked for his inheritance, it was actually the older son's responsibility to do everything he could to save this relationship between his father and his brother. By doing nothing, he abdicated his role as mediator. And when the younger son returned to, returned to the community, he further withdrew from his family by publicly slandering his younger brother to his father. And so at the end of the story, it is the older brother who is not at this party of new life. So in all of these stories, there are multiple layers of people taking responsibility. We take responsibility in how we support each other, in how each of us keep each how we keep each other accountable, and how we keep each other safe. And these are all good opportunities to practice taking responsibility for when we directly harm people around us. And this will inevitably happen. It might happen to you later on today. Um, when we practice supporting others and taking responsibility, we are, we are learning how to take responsibility for our own actions. And then we know then that there are other people around us who will help us take responsibility in making right what has been wronged. 
So I want to leave you with a tool, because I always do this. Um, this is called Willing Hands. It was a tool that was introduced to me first as a way to um, reduce anger and therefore potential harm. So when we are angry, we often clench our hands and this action is connected to our brains feeling like we need to be in a fight or flight mode, that we are entering this state of survival. Um, and so we are angry and our brain is like, gotta fight this and so our hands are clenched. But by actively opening our hands just like this, can be at your side or on your lap. Um, it is a way to tell our brains that we are actually not in a survival mode and that we can process an interaction in a rational way. Um, so I invite you to think about a situation where you have caused some harm and I want you to face that situation with all of your emotions and with all of the complexity and with our biological tendency to run away with physically opening your hands and demonstrating you are willing to take responsibility. And this will demonstrate we have a willing heart and mind to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with each other and our Creator. Amen.